Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey. Good evening from Israel. Uh, it's Israel's 74th uh, Independence Day. Those who are celebrating Chag Sameach or Demon Simcha. Um, I'm going to just start for a few minutes, uh, you know, uh, for we've been doing this for a couple of years and we talk quite a lot about Israeli politics. And certainly over the last two years, it's uh, dysfunctionality, uh, how disorderly it is, how dysfunctional it is, how problematic it is at times uh, to make uh, decisions. And we've spoken a little bit about that, but, you know, I think maybe now would be an opportune time just to sort of take a step backwards uh, you know, where we were at the beginning of Israel's uh, uh, independence and where we've been for the last year. And, you know, part of the reason uh, that we have so much to talk about every week is partly because of Israel's uh, government system, uh, political system, electoral system. Um, and I've mentioned in the past that it came from the Weimar Republic and the idea at the beginning of the state was to take a very fractured Israeli society. Don't forget there were uh, people coming from over 100 countries, speaking dozens of different languages, coming from different cultures, different geographic locations, having different experiences. Um, and uh, as one can imagine, uh, it was a very unwieldy uh, society. But the most important thing about this society that we should remember when we look back uh, uh, 74 years is that not one single Israeli, or maybe a tiny, tiny fraction, of Israeli society had any experience of democracy, whether they come, from, they came from North Africa, the Middle East, under Arab rule, whether they came from uh, former Soviet Union, whether they came from Nazi Germany uh, or other areas under occupation. Very, very few Israelis uh, at the establishment uh, of the State of Israel in 1948 had any experience of democracy. So it really was uh, a blank slate for many, and it's quite remarkable thinking. 74 years ahead, how I've created one of the most robust, as I said, sometimes dis dysfunctional, but certainly robust liberal democracies in the world, especially in an area, in a region where it's simply, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty unheard of. So, you know, as much as we like to talk about, you know, what's going on and the dysfunctionality and the negative side of politics, we have to also look at the glass half full. And after 74 years, you know, there's been quite a lot of achievements, whether it's Israel as an OECD country, whether it's uh, being the strongest uh, uh, country uh, defense and security wise in a nation facing uh, ongoing uh, threats, uh, some of them seemingly insurmountable. Uh, and today that there's a lot that Israel can be uh, pretty proud of, uh, especially if we look over the last year, you know, there, there's some to be proud, there's some uh, certain ups and downs. Um, the first thing we can look at is the fact that we have a government uh, since last year, since last Israel's Independence Day. We had four elections that achieved not, uh, no, no results and no government. But finally, we had a government, probably one of the most unexpected governments in Israel's history, certainly the widest coalition in Israel's history, encompassing more parties than there ever has been, and certainly uh, in, uh, encompassing uh, 
a you know at the wider spectrum of Israeli parties from uh, an Arab Islamist party, the first ever Arab party in an Israeli government, uh, the far left Meretz, Labour, uh, uh, Blue and White, Yeshatid, uh, Tikva Hadasha, um, Yamina, Israel Beitin. Uh, it's quite an unwieldy government, but it's almost coming to a year. We'll talk a little bit about that. Who would have thought a, a number of years ago there'd be four Arab foreign ministers meeting in Stable Care, the, uh, the resting place of Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, with four foreign ministers coming to Israel for a summit along with the uh, US Secretary of State, uh, Lincoln, uh, to discuss how to move forward uh, in peace and security. It, it's something that, which simply uh, unthinkable a number of years ago. Uh, this year has also seen a reset with Turkey. Uh, you know, one can't imagine if, if one were just following Turkey-Israel relations for the last decade, but uh, before that, certainly before uh, President uh, Erdogan, Israel and Turkey had excellent relations. And really together, that peace was the foundational pillar, one of the foundational pillars of peace and stability uh, in the region. Well, it's, you know, things are, are, are not moved back to there, certainly, and they probably won't, uh, at least uh, in the foreseeable future. But certainly Turkey has understood that it needs to have closer relations with Israel, whether it's through gritted teeth or not, that, that's certainly a debate to be had, but certainly there's an interest now in Turkey to reset relations, to move on a more positive uh, path. Uh, on the negative side, we have seen certain things that we have not seen before. Uh, we have seen rocket attacks on Jerusalem from Hamas, but certainly not at the level that we saw last year, especially around Jerusalem Day. The threats that Hamas have made since then, uh, the gains, one could argue that they've made on the Temple Mount and even uh, in Judea and Samaria, West Bank, uh, Palestinian society. We're seeing those even up to today uh, with Sinwar, one of the military leaders of Hamas making threats against Israel. Uh, again, the kind of threats that we wouldn't have necessarily heard worded in, in the way that we're hearing them uh, today. Uh, another first, maybe not first, but certainly first in a while, uh, we saw this year again, um, going back to the, the war of last year, uh, as we saw many very serious battles, conflict within mixed Arab and Israeli cities, whether in Ramle, Lod, Haifa, and other places. Really, uh, the relations in some of these places between uh, Jewish and Muslim Arab neighbors uh, has not been reset, has not gone back to where it was. There's still a lot of fear, trepidation. There's still a, a sense of unease in many of these cities. So that's certainly a negative uh, that we saw throughout uh, the last year. Moving on to today's events. Um, and what we saw today really is um, indicative of where we are perhaps in Israeli political discourse. Uh, with the divisions, we saw a prime minister uh, get up to speak at the annual uh, Yom HaZikron, Israel's Memorial Day, Israel's Remembrance Day for its fallen in wars and uh, victims of terrorist attacks. And always there's a, there's a national and public ceremony where um, the families of uh, those who have fallen and victims of terror uh, will listen to the president, the uh, prime minister and others. And we saw Naftali Bennett get up to speak and he was uh, verbally assaulted uh, by some members of the audience. Um, there weren't that many, but it doesn't take too many to create uh, a major disturbance. And that's kind of what happened. 
Uh, Bennett kept his cool. He got a lot of plaudits from the media for that. One can imagine, you know, it, it's, it's an impossible situation. He can't uh, say anything to calm uh, the situation. They can't really remove these people. They are family. Uh, families are people who've lost loved ones. So you have to be very, very sensitive. Uh, so for around six minutes, he sat there. He, you know, he, he looked at them. He didn't turn away. He didn't try and um, do anything except just to say, I understand your pain. And when it comes to the families of the fallen, uh, you can say and shout whatever you want. And, and he actually did quite well con considering there was also uh, a less vociferous reception for other members of the government. There were some members of um, organizations representing uh, the families of those who had fallen who said that uh, government members were not, are not welcome. The main organizations and the overwhelming majority did accept, and in fact, some of them even apologized uh, to Naftali Bennett. But it really goes to show uh, you know, where our political discourse is, because it obviously one can imagine that it sets a, a bad precedent. Not to say that Naftali Bennett is the first uh, uh, Israeli prime minister who was heckled at these events. Uh, uh, prime Minister, former Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was heckled also. Uh, previously, but it was uh, one or two individuals and it didn't last particularly long. Uh, so certainly what we saw today are scenes that um, are unprecedented in Israel and the fact that such a, uh, an important event uh, for so many, it's a central event in Israel's national calendar was interrupted uh, for such a long time. The prime minister was interrupted and he was called all manner of uh, uh, problematic things. Uh, which I'm not going to repeat, uh, really just shows uh, where we are. Uh, On to politics, uh, because uh, we're having next week the uh, opening of the summer session of the Knesset, and this has been eagerly awaited by all sides, perhaps by some less than others. Uh, but it's, it's a crucial period, because since the Knesset last met, uh, we've seen the uh, coalition's majority uh, go from a majority of one to no majority at all. As we've uh, said previously, it's now 60-60 in the Knesset because of Edith Tillman of Yamina's defection. Uh, it remains to be seen exactly how she's going to vote. Um, if she's going to abstain, then the coalition still has a majority and it's able to pass certain laws, uh, not basic laws, which have a quasi-constitutional um, uh, presence, uh, because for there you need at least 61 votes. So, it's clear that that's not going to happen, as is the budget not going to happen next year, which also requires uh, 61. But if Silman abstains on certain laws, then, then they can still uh, pass. Um, and when she was asked during an interview earlier in the week how she's going to vote, uh, she was very non-definitive. Uh, she tried to avoid the question. Uh, she did talk about that she felt let down. She wanted to give this government a chance. And then when she saw uh, that, um, what she felt that it wasn't living up to its promise. She didn't specify what, uh, what specifically she felt uh, let down by, but uh, it was very carefully curated with, with uh, talking points that were just repeated by Solomon throughout the interview. But it was uh, interesting that she was non-definitive exactly how she's going to act in the future. Um, so it remains to be seen. Uh, Ram, as we know, are still officially uh, in a temporary boycott of the government. Uh, it's been very easy to boycott a government uh, or Knesset that hasn't been meeting. So next week, it's going to have to decide 
what's it going to do? Uh, there's a lot, there's a bit of an inner struggle there, as we've talked about. Uh, you know, there's four members, two would like to quit the government who are moving towards that position, and two would like to remain, including Mansour Abbas, uh, the leader. So it, will, it remains to be seen. They, they have their demands. Uh, it's unclear exactly how strong uh, they will be on these demands and whether they've been met yet. Uh, we haven't heard uh, either way, but in the next few days, uh, one will have to make a decision. Uh, the coalition has basically given out uh, orders to its uh, members of Knesset, or 60 of them, that they have to be there for at least the next three weeks. There are no excuses, no uh, uh, trips abroad, nothing. Every single MK has to appear at every single session. Only after the initial three weeks will they have permission uh, perhaps to, to leave only if they are offset by a member of the opposition. And we've talked about that before, this, this whole concept of being, uh, to, you know, offsetting uh, one side to the other. In, in previous Knessets, um, usually if someone is away, maybe they're on an official trip, or maybe they have some personal reason um, they're away for a vote, usually they go to the other side of the aisle and then someone uh, uh, drops out from that. It's, it's, it's a well-known custom in Israel, but certainly in recent years, uh, with the division, with the divisiveness of Israeli politics, there's been a lot of hesitation to do so. We've had all those you know, uh, crazy uh, uh, events where people had to leave uh, you know, a funeral of a close family member, they had to leave hospital beds, they had to come from a birthing maternity ward sometimes, uh, to the Knesset plenum uh, to make sure that they voted because the other side would not offset. So um, the fact that they're saying for the next three weeks they have to uh, turn up to every session, there's no offsetting, uh, remains to be seen what's going to change something over these three weeks. The interesting thing is having met and spoken with a number of members of Knesset, ministers uh, in the coalition uh, over the last week or so, there is an optimism, there is a confidence that this coalition will last the session. Because when it lasts the session, then we're into the summer break and then we've got the uh, Jewish holidays. So, you know, there's a good chance that uh, it could last uh, another few months. So um, there is that confidence. I'm not 100% sure if it's an accurate confidence. I think everyone is just waiting to see what happens. My personal belief, and I've stated this before, is that um, because everyone knows that this uh, government, this Knesset has a sell-by date uh, next March. It has to fall unless something dramatic happens because simply will not be able to pass the budget. Um, everyone knows that this is going to fall, so everyone's going to start thinking, what is my individual or my party position? Or how am I going to go into the next elections? Do I have an issue over? Do I quit the coalition over an issue? Do I make it an ideological issue? Do I get any achievements first? All these things will be going through not just the minds of the leaders of the party, but every single individual MK. And because it's such a, it's not a slim majority, there is no majority, but because of this situation, every single MK will be able to hold the government to ransom. So it'll be very interesting to see how the, uh, the, the summer uh, session begins, uh, because I think then we'll, we'll get a bit of a sense whether this government can coalition can still work together, can still muddle through uh, the summer session, um, and then maybe we'll get an idea if it could survive uh, before the end of the year. Again, my 
feeling is that we will have elections in Israel before the end of the year. It just uh, depends exactly when that will be. Uh, but that's certainly something uh, to look out for uh, in the basically starting next week. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. So first one in is from Carrie Hillebrand. In light of Lavrov's comments and the aftermath, do you see Russia withdrawing from or limiting the deconfliction agreement in Syria? Well, certainly that comment got a lot of attention. I can imagine for those who, who don't know what, uh, what is being referred to, um, for a Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov in an interview, I can't remember which uh, station it was with, um, asked him about this whole idea of denazification, which, which is the Russian narrative they've been pushing since the beginning of uh, their invasion of uh, Ukraine. And the interviewer said, well, you know, uh, Zelensky, uh, President Zelensky is Jewish, so how can you talk about denazification? Uh, and Foreign Minister Lavrov came out with some, you know, bizarre comments, to say the least, that, uh, well, we know that many of the worst anti-Semites in history have actually been Jews, and um, even, hit, uh, I can't remember if he was uh, an equivalent about it, but basically suggested that Hitler also had Jewish blood. As one can imagine, this created quite a lot of uh, attention, a lot of uh, blowback from Israeli and Jewish organizations. Um, you know, even Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who's tried to be cautious uh, with the response towards Russia, came out with uh, you know uh, a quite scathing um, response. Uh, the Russians doubled down on those remarks. Uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lapid uh, summoned the foreign uh, the um, the Russian ambassador in Israel for dressing down. And they agreed ostensibly in that meeting that they would leave it at that. But the Russians, as I said, the Russian foreign ministry, foreign ministry doubled down in the comments and basically uh, attacked Israel for its reaction. Um, I think certainly Israel is moving further and further away from Russia, closer and closer to uh, Ukraine. And I think non-coincidentally, uh, senior members of Hamas were in Moscow. Uh, to discuss relations in the last couple of days, or they're invited to come in the next couple of days. And I think in that, not to say that Hamas officials have not visited Moscow in the past, but I think in that there is a message, uh, subtle or not. Uh, and I think it depends what level uh, of reception the Hamas officials get and, and what level of access they get to Russian leaders will send a message to Israel uh, what level of dissatisfaction there is. But certainly, uh, with every passing day, Israel is moving away from that position of trying to be a mediator, trying to not necessarily remain neutral, uh, but at least trying not to uh, annoy uh, the Russians because of the issue in Syria that was referred to in the question. Uh, but it's becoming increasingly difficult at this point. And do you think that this will be one of the, the top uh, questions or discussions in the Knesset once the session resumes? Uh, the question of Russia? Um, no, I mean, foreign policy issues are not necessarily brought up in the Knesset. That's not um, really the right forum. There is a, a Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, but again, I don't know if that's really an issue where the opposition or coalition differ. Both sides, especially as the opposition were in power for the last 13 years, uh, 
uh, they understand the constraints and I don't think that they'll make too much uh, political hay out of that because they understand what's being said and no one's going to defend the comments of Lavrov or the reaction or, or criticize necessarily the reaction of, uh, of Israeli leaders. Uh, so I, I don't think that will necessarily uh, be one of the major talking points in the Knesset when it reopens. Understood. Thank you. Uh, and for our viewers, just a reminder that we do have our Q&A box if you'd like to ask a question. Next one is Barack Korkmaz asks, uh, what do you think about the U.S. estimates on Iranian nuclear program? They say Iran is weeks away from the bomb. Well, I think uh, to a certain extent, the U.S. has now adopted what Israel has been saying for quite a while. Israel has been saying, uh, I mean, the defense Minister uh, Benny Gantz saying it uh, a number of months ago that uh, Iran is only weeks away. Uh, again, let, let's let's get a, a few things um, straight. They're not a few weeks or even a few months away from nuclear bomb. They are a few weeks away from um, having enough material uh, for a nuclear weapon. Obviously. Uh, being able to then uh, militarize it and attach it to a missile and testing, that can take up to two years from my understanding. Again, I'm not an expert on this, but that, that's my understanding. But certainly um, uh, the weaponization or to get to a weaponization level of uranium, uh, we are probably talking about a few weeks, a few months. So I don't think there's anything uh, particularly new in that, especially for Israel. What is interesting which uh, on that particular uh, uh, you know, issue is the fact that also um, the US has come around to Israel's point of view on the Revolutionary Guards. If we, if we remember a couple of months ago, there was talk that the Biden administration may remove uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards from uh, its list of terrorist uh, organizations. Uh, that was one of the Iranian demands to return to the JCPOA. And as one can imagine, there was great consternation in Israel. Israel tried to make the case very strongly to the Biden administration. Uh, in the end, the Joint Chief of Staff, uh, the US Joint Chief of Staff said that he was against it. But what we have heard in, in recent days, which is uh, very interesting as well, plays into sort of the uh, local domestic political arena is um, that uh, Naftali Bennett uh, hinted, or at least uh, he was accused of leaking, reports that Israel basically thwarted some assassination attempts of Israeli, American, and I think European officials. And some of the, uh, some of the information was gleaned from interrogation of senior revolutionary guards within Iran. And that's quite a remarkable feat uh, to achieve, that you would go into Iran and, and interrogate them and, and glean that information. Uh, that served a number of uh, uh, things for Bennett. First of all, it it showed uh, the Americans how dangerous the Iranian Revolutionary Guards are, but it also said to the Israeli public, you know, I'm prepared to do things that are a little bit outside the box. I can also be daring. I can also, uh, you know, conduct uh, uh, operations uh, that you know will, will, will ensure Israel's security. So there's quite a little, there's quite a lot of debate about that whether that was really to ensure the Americans do not delist the Revolutionary Guards or whether it was purely a political stunt. Uh, either way, it could have achieved both aims. Um, certainly was a, a little bit of a win uh, for Bennett. Uh, and the fact that the Americans now seem to have moved away from that position completely 
uh, is also perhaps telling that perhaps the, the negotiations are going nowhere, some suspect, and at the moment there is no return to the JCPOA in sight. Thank you. And then you were talking about if the budget, the budget will not be passed, so this government has a sell-by date. Uh, are there any not so behind the scenes uh, relationships being formed between different parties to to look forward to a new coalition government? There's always discussions. There's always meetings, and the media get very excited when someone from this party, someone from that party, sitting together. Um, and there's always outreach. I mean, it's it's you know Likud. Uh, and uh, its allies are spending an enormous amount of time trying to identify at least one member of Yamina, perhaps Tikva um, Khadashah, uh, Giron Saar's party, uh, New Hope, uh, to try and bring one more across, because as one can imagine, if one more person comes across, then the opposition have a majority uh, to be able to pass a law, uh, a, a law of no confidence, which would bring down the government and uh, forced new elections. So uh, there's this outreach is happening all the time. Any sort of leads that, that are happening, any family members, as we saw with Indian Tillman, any uh, spiritual leaders, any friends, any community leaders, anything that can put pressure on any of these members who are seen as uh, weaker links um, is happening all the time. And, and I'm sure some of these uh, meetings are taking place uh, at the moment. It doesn't seem that anyone's ready to jump yet, but obviously, as we saw with the Tillman, we can all be surprised, you know, from one hour to the next. So that certainly remains to be seen. Thank you. And if Ram does decide to continue with its boycott, what will that mean for any voting uh, going forward? Well, it means that the government not only will not be able to uh, pass any laws, and, and don't forget there are some laws which already passed their first reading and they're ready for the second and third reading, uh, uh, they're basically usually one after the other. So some of these laws uh, that were passed to the point where they're just ready to become law now will have no chance. Even if Ram do turn up and vote, again, if everybody on both sides votes on every single issue, then nothing will be passed because a tie will not pass uh, a law. But more, more than that, if they decide to boycott, then potentially the opposition could start passing laws to embarrass uh, the government. But don't forget, in the opposition, still remains a party of six, which is the joint Arab list uh, of Ayman Uda, Ahmed Tibi, which won't necessarily want to give a prize. And perhaps there aren't that many issues in which they will agree with uh, Netanyahu's right-wing religious ultra-Orthodox uh, bloc. So um, it may, it, it, it's, it's uncertain, but certainly there is an interest in them working together to embarrass the government, perhaps on issues they work together on issues of interest for the joint Arab list and, and, and even uh, what, what's, you know, for some of the ultra-Orthodox parties. So it's possible that they'll be able to find some common ground to embarrass the government and try and pass some laws. Thank you. Uh, Eric asks, what is happening with the Netanyahu trials? They're still going on. Uh, we spoke uh, a few weeks ago, um, Philber, who was a former uh, senior advisor to Netanyahu, is taking the stand. And so far, he is considered of a problematic witness for the prosecution because he seems to have gone back on many of the things that he said during his 
uh, interview, interrogation, whatever you want to talk about. He, was, he is considered a state witness because he has agreed to testify on behalf of the state to get a better deal for himself because he also uh, was accused of uh, uh, some crimes. Uh, and that, that was the deal. But at the moment, he's certainly not giving everything the prosecution would like. Um, but again, it's still, you know, they're still going through, uh, you know, I, I can't remember what number Philber is, but he is still one of the early witnesses on a, a very long list of witnesses. So nothing necessarily will happen for quite a while because there's a lot of witnesses to go through. Don't forget, there's three cases to go through. So the whole trial will take a very long time, if not years. Um, so there's not that much happening. There's some interesting tidbits uh, that the media report on, but uh, uh, especially uh, surrounding Philber's uh, testimony, as I said, because the state thought that they could rely on some of his testimony and now he's claiming that it didn't happen exactly as he stated or he can't remember exactly, or even going a little bit further. And there's a debate whether the prosecution want to uh, characterize him as a hostile witness and strike some of his testimony. Uh, they haven't gone that far yet, but uh, if he carries on or even goes further than he has, uh, it could be that we'll get to that stage. All right, well, thank you so much. We're just shy of the close of the webinar, so we might as well end now. Uh, so thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you. Uh, for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Ori Wertman. Uh, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.